Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of racism, sexual assault, medical malpractice, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. You've probably heard of bloodletting, an old-fashioned medical procedure that feels like something out of a vampire story. In modern times, the practice has mostly fallen out of use, but at the turn of the 20th century, it was a common treatment for heart failures and strokes. Creating an incision on the body, doctors drained blood to reduce inflammation, lower blood pressure, and prevent excessive bleeding later on. At times, it proved successful, but there were many dangers. Bloodletting itself could cause a patient to go into cardiac arrest, while also opening them up to the risk of deadly infections. Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde didn't seem to fear this possibility as he made an incision on his in-law's arm. Brought to the family sick room to save the man's life, he appeared determined, draining blood from the man's arm. He emptied cup after cup after cup. Other medical professionals in the room grew gravely concerned. Hyde didn't seem like he was going to stop anytime soon. And in fact, he was about to give bleeding someone dry a whole new meaning. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm looking forward to offering Alastair some medical insight into our case of Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde. Dr. Hyde was a police surgeon at the turn of the 20th century and showed once again how much medical care has changed over the last 200 years, but how little human nature has changed. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, a Missouri physician and fraudster. It's suspected that he murdered three of his in-laws in 1909 and poisoned even more, all in a sneaky bid at their million-dollar inheritance. This week, we'll explore Dr. Hyde's earliest swindles, extorting money from the women he charmed. We'll also track how he weaseled his way into the wealthy Swope family and his ruthless efforts to gain control of their estate. Next week, a devastating typhoid outbreak sweeps through the Swope home until another determined doctor catches on and comes for Dr. Hyde. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Long before Bennett Clark Hyde was pocketing poisons and plotting against his in-laws, he was a good old Southern boy, raised with prejudice and privilege. Born in 1872, he grew up in a tight-knit Missouri community that had just witnessed the Civil War. Hyde's own father served as a Confederate Army chaplain, but their family name hadn't been tarnished for it. In fact, he was well respected for his Confederate military service. The war might have ended, but the racism hadn't. So it's easy to imagine young Bennett Clark Hyde growing up with a sense of entitlement and bigotry. Though Hyde's father may have been a stern Baptist preacher, he seemed fond of his son, bragging about how the boy once saved an injured dog. Perhaps it was this instance that inspired Hyde to save people for the sense of importance it gave him. After all, having life in one's hands is no small responsibility, and Hyde was apparently undaunted in taking it on. So, on to medicine he went. While Hyde could have attended any of the several universities where his father served as a trustee, he instead enrolled in Missouri's University Medical College. He graduated in the spring of 1895. By May of that year, 23-year-old Hyde was appointed as Kansas City Police Surgeon. He'd treat anyone who'd been brought into the station after a street fight or other violence. It was no small job. To go from a student to a designated police surgeon in just a few years is pretty out there by today's medical standards, but back then, this kind of hiring, right after graduating, might have been more typical. Today, the path to a surgical license can take anywhere from 8 to 12 years, depending on the specialty, and a major part of the training involves field experience. Given how ripe he was, plucked right out of school, I probably would have only been equipped to treat superficial injuries. While the fast promotion may have made some sense for the day, you'd think the police force would want someone who was a little more qualified and seasoned. Perhaps in some respects, Hyde's fast professional ascent was a testament to his charm and intelligence. His Baptist background had equipped him to cite the Bible at any given moment and delivering Shakespeare quotes off the cuff was his specialty. But more than that, Hyde probably shared values with the old police force. As his father's son, Hyde likely represented a faction of people who stood for the way things were. Whether he publicly vocalized his prejudice is unclear, but it wouldn't be long before Hyde's actions 
showed his leanings. Around 1897, a black woman named Annie Clements was brought to a Kansas City police station after allegedly taking morphine for her depression. Dr. Hyde was tasked with her care, though what he did next hardly fell under that umbrella. As author Giles Fowler describes in his book Deaths on Pleasant Street, while a warden held Annie down, Hyde poured oil of mustard into her vagina, shouting profanities at her. For a woman coping with depression and a probable morphine problem, Dr. Hyde took a strange and highly inappropriate course of action. While there's a long history of people using mustard seeds and oils medicinally, there's no real evidence of their efficacy. Mustard derivatives have been thought to aid with immunity and digestion, provide pulmonary benefits, and help with the pain of arthritis. To give this some context, mustard seeds do contain anti-inflammatory agents and other beneficial health properties like selenium, magnesium, niacin, and vitamin B3. As far as Annie's depression, there have been claims that mustard products have soothing psychological effects, but the science on this isn't sufficient. Annie would have likely felt incredibly violated and in tremendous pain. The erucic acid in mustard oil can cause major skin and soft tissue irritation and can even trigger severe allergic reactions. Dr. Hyde didn't care at all about what he was doing to this poor woman. That much was confirmed by his next order to her. Get up and out of here and don't come back no more. He didn't want to treat her. He wanted her gone. But his order was nearly impossible to follow. Annie had fallen to her knees in utter agony. Unable to stand or walk, she crawled for over a block before she found an officer to help her. This single traumatic moment would bring lasting shockwaves of anguish for Annie. Today, the violence she endured could be considered a hate crime. But Dr. Hyde didn't seem to think he'd done anything wrong. Luckily, word of the assault quickly spread across the precinct and ultimately sparked a hearing before the Board of Police Commissioners. There, Hyde attempted to downplay what he'd done, claiming he'd only tried to wake the patient out of her stupor. In his mind, the officers were targeting him for political reasons that had nothing to do with his attack on Annie. Whether or not politics played a role in the decision, the Board of Police Commissioners effectively fired Dr. Hyde. But, being that this was 1897 Missouri, Dr. Hyde easily moved on to a new role, and it wouldn't be long before he showed his true colors again. In 1898, 26-year-old Dr. Hyde was working as an instructor of anatomy at his alma mater, University Medical College. Anyone else in his position might have been on their best behavior, eager to win over approval to make up for past indiscretions. But not Dr. Hyde. In 1898, two black men were caught robbing graves and arrested. According to their story, the bodies were for none other than Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde. They'd been selling him corpses. Since cadavers were useful for teaching anatomy and often in short supply, Dr. Hyde's motive was clear. Police arrested him, but he was never tried, and the case was dropped 
in March 1899. Nevertheless, it seems Dr. Hyde thought it best to pivot careers. Public prestige as a medical school faculty member came with the responsibility of morally upright behavior. Money, on the other hand, could be secured in a vast array of ways. Around this time, Dr. Hyde's criminal motives seemed to solidify. He wanted cash, and loads of it. Coming up, Dr. Hyde finds trouble in a new hustle. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1898, 26-year-old Bennett Clark Hyde had officially tarnished his standing as both Kansas City police surgeon and an instructor of anatomy. His background as the son of a renowned Baptist preacher had made him a shoo-in for the roles in a city that widely upheld post-Civil War segregation. But Hyde just couldn't seem to stay out of trouble with the law. So he changed his tactic. Using loans from friends, Dr. Hyde established his own private practice. However, he couldn't stay away from crime for long. For his next gambit, Dr. Hyde consulted a skill set far outside of his medical training. His talent for acting. A bachelor in his mid-twenties, Dr. Hyde was no stranger to seduction. His southern sensibilities and manly build made him popular among his female patients. One of them said that his voice was so enticing, he made me feel I was doing him a favor when he asked me to let him give me the chloroform. For a man like Dr. Hyde, who had benefited his whole life from the advantages of his background, his sex appeal was just the cherry on top. Now, he would put it to good use. Around the turn of the century, Dr. Hyde met a divorcee, Sarah Frank, and won her affections. He promised her marriage, then borrowed $2,200 from her, cash that he had no intention of returning. He left Sarah high and dry and moved on to his next target, 
the former Mrs. Mike Heim. It's unclear exactly how they met or what attracted him to her, but it may very well have been the $4,000 of alimony she'd received from her ex-husband. Hyde asked her to lend it to him, and the woman obliged. She likely figured she'd be wedded to Hyde soon enough, and they'd share the funds. But this was little more than fantasy. Hyde had seemingly no intention of getting hitched. As he'd done to Sarah, Hyde bailed on his romantic promises and moved right along to a new mark in 1903. Only this one wasn't fresh out of a failed marriage. 23-year-old Frances Swope was a young, unmarried maiden. Though we don't know much about her early life, it's likely she'd helped with raising her younger brothers and sisters. Such was the way of the eldest daughter in those days. Now nearing her mid-twenties, she was on the lookout for a proper suitor. Someone she could build a life with, someone trustworthy, perhaps someone who'd found financial success on their own, a doctor maybe, who didn't interest themselves too much with her lavish inheritance. At the time, the Swope estate was held by one of Kansas City's most charitable benefactors, 76-year-old Colonel Thomas Swope. Early on in his life, he had come into his own modest inheritance, investing it in Kansas City when it was little more than farmland. As industrialization hit the town, Swope got rich selling and renting properties that would be turned into skyscrapers and urban landmarks. His wealth essentially made itself, but Swope was also quite good at maintaining it. Though he'd regularly donated to charities and public work groups over the years, he still had about $3.6 million. That money wouldn't be going to a spouse or children when he died. Swope didn't have them. Instead, it'd be split among his nieces and nephews, including 23-year-old Francis Swope. Dollar signs in his eyes, Dr. Hyde didn't waste his time courting her. He pursued Francis as soon as they met, in 1903. Two years later, in 1905, 33-year-old Hyde proposed. But Frances's mother, Maggie Swope, had some concerns. She'd heard rumors about the two poor women Hyde had swindled, and she saw him as a fortune-seeking, dishonorable man who had no business being with her daughter. Eager to persuade Maggie otherwise, Hyde brought in a lawyer to reframe some of his past actions. Apparently, the attorney convinced Maggie that though Hyde had walked out on the ladies, he'd never cheated them out of their money. Though she was skeptical, Maggie Swope agreed to let the engagement proceed. It was the worst mistake she could have made. Shortly after she'd given her reluctant blessing to Francis and Hyde, one of Hyde's victims from his past came forward demanding repayment. Ultimately, both of the jilted women threatened lawsuits. The matters were settled out of court, but not before Maggie Swope confronted two difficult truths. The first, that Hyde had in fact swindled his past partners. The second, he'd taken no issue lying to her face about it. Worried, 
Maggie Swope called off the engagement and pulled out all the stops to convince her daughter she was making a mistake. It seems she called on family members to talk some sense into Francis, and when that didn't work, she offered her daughter shiny opportunities. Some accounts say she almost sent Francis to an all-female college. Others suggest that a trip to Europe was on the table. Maybe abroad, Francis would find a man superior to Hyde. However, Francis turned up her nose, determined to marry the man she loved. To outsmart her, Maggie banished her daughter to Virginia. But Francis had her mind made up. She wasn't about to follow her mum's orders. She switched routes and made her way to Arkansas instead. The Swope relatives here seemed more willing to accept Hyde, and when he came to meet Francis in June 1905, the two promptly tied the knot. It might have been a joyful day, apart from the fact that Francis's mother wasn't there to see it. And when news got back to her, Maggie was hardly pleased. For the next 14 months, she and her daughter didn't speak. Eventually, however, Dr. Hyde suffered from an inflamed iris, and Maggie Swope decided to visit and wish him well. Dr. Hyde was experiencing iritis, and although very uncomfortable, it's not something that's lethal or often unmanageable. Iritis, which can either be acute or chronic, is inflammation and swelling in the eye's iris, or that little colorful ring that encircles our pupil. Hyde could have been dealing with symptoms like eye pain and redness, poor vision, tearing, and light sensitivity. Worst case scenario, if left untreated, the condition can lead to blindness or glaucoma. However, given Hyde's means and privilege, it's very safe to assume that he'd make a successful recovery. So Maggie likely had other motivations for the trip. Soon after she arrived at her married daughter's home, Maggie had a heart-to-heart with Francis. By the end, they let bygones be bygones. As for Hyde, he worked his way into the family's good graces when one of Francis' siblings had his arm amputated after a mining incident. Maggie made a trip to see the young man and brought her surgeon's son-in-law along. We don't know exactly what Hyde did to help. It's possible he bandaged the remaining part of the limb with a tourniquet or compression bandage. But whatever the case, after this, Hyde was officially accepted by the Swope family. Francis Swope's millionaire uncle, Colonel Thomas Swope, even bought a $10,000 house for the young couple, clearly expressing at least mild approval. But even though Hyde was finally on good terms with all the Swopes, he quickly learned that didn't grant him easy access to the family fortune. Upon his death, the portions designated to each of Colonel Swope's nieces and nephews would be given in the form of high-rent real estate properties. But Francis Hyde's property was valued the lowest. According to writer Giles Fowler, this meant she'd make at least $100,000 less than her siblings. There were rumors as to why Swope might have shorted her. Some thought perhaps he'd made this decision when she'd married Hyde against her mother's will as a punishment. But it was also possible the property had simply lost value since Swope originally assigned it to Francis. Luckily for Francis, there was the residuary estate too, 
the portion of Swope's money left over after the land had been divvied up. That amounted to roughly 1.4 million and slotted each heir to the fortune with a nice $140,000 lump sum. Even if she inherited the least of the Swope children, Francis was set for a pretty payout. But if Hyde could do anything about it, he'd ensure his wife made far more. Of course, this was all theoretical. After the Hyde's 1905 marriage, Colonel Swope was still very much alive. And while he might have spent nearly every day of his life nursing a generous glass of whiskey, the Colonel seemed too stubborn to die anytime soon. But in 1908, that changed. The 80-year-old millionaire began voicing complaints about his digestion. A physician determined that the root cause of the issue was piles, or hemorrhoids, which can make bowel movements excruciating. Swope underwent surgery, but the procedure came with other challenges. His immune system weakened. Swope suffered low energy and caught a cold. To help, he took three doses of iron, quinine, and strychnine daily. Strychnine is an especially interesting choice, but back then it was a substance the medical community had a lot more faith in. Historically, it's been largely used as a poison, and we've talked about this in past episodes. The toxin disrupts nerve firings that regulate muscular function, leading to painful spasming, and potentially death if the respiratory muscles become affected. Because strychnine is such a powerful motor neuron activator, it was a common stimulant drug back in Hyde's time. He may have felt Swope's lethargic and cold-like symptoms could reverse with a small dose. Unfortunately, Swope's overall well-being showed little improvement. Throughout the following year, Dr. Hyde made a point to tend to him, perhaps in an effort to increase France's inheritance. He regularly visited Colonel Swope in the upstairs room of 406 South Pleasant Street, where the Swope family lived. Swope took a liking to Dr. Hyde, even using his robust network to help the doctor secure a position at the prestigious city hospital. But as much as Hyde might have gotten into Swope's good graces, he couldn't stop what happened next. In September 1909, Swope revealed that he no longer wanted his residuary estate to go to his nieces and nephews. They'd get their share of his wealth through real estate. Those who really deserved the other half of his money were the poor working people of Kansas City, ordinary folk who Swope truly respected. If Colonel Swope followed through, Hyde would make even less from his marriage to Francis Swope. Of course, saying that to her rich uncle would do nothing but reveal his ugly intentions. If Hyde wanted to stop the old man from changing his will, he'd need to be sneaky. Coming up, Dr. Hyde finds opportunity in an unexpected tragedy. Now, back to the story. In September 1909, a peculiar energy moved through the Swope Mansion at 406 South Pleasant Street. Colonel Thomas Swope had a recent change of heart regarding his fortune and how it would be allocated when he died. At age 80, 
he'd now decided he wanted to bequeath his liquid funds to the working people of Kansas City, the booming metropolis that had practically made Swope's fortune for him. In his mind, it was the least he could do to give back. But Swope's nephew-in-law, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, wasn't too keen on this plan. And on September 13th, 1909, he took his first steps toward thwarting it. Dr. Hyde placed a call to Hugo Breckland's drugstore. It was his go-to pharmacy for the pills, tinctures and tonics he prescribed as a doctor. But on this particular day, he placed an order that starkly contrasted his usual ones. Quote, four five-grain capsules of cyanide of potassium. It was an odd ask, given that cyanide was typically used in bulk by jewelers and dentists for cleaning gold. Beyond that, the chemical was used as rat poison, surely not something to put in an oral medicine capsule. Though the cashier might have thought it strange, he recorded and completed the request. The next day, Hyde put in another order, this time for something far less questionable two dozen capsules of a popular digestive compound known as Fairchild's Holodin. It was little more than a digestive aid, perfectly harmless. The order was promptly filled and Hyde waited. Now in possession of two types of capsules, one of them contained a digestive supplement, the other a lethal poison. Both the exact same size, shape and colour. Armed and ready, Hyde just needed the right moment to strike. And it soon came. Just not in the way Dr. Hyde had expected. See, Colonel Thomas Swope might have been in charge of where his estate went, but his cousin, 63-year-old James Moss Hunton, was the estate's primary executor. And on October 1st, 1909, James Moss Hunton known as Moss, wasn't feeling so well. That evening, Moss made his way to the kitchen and sat down to supper around 5.30pm. Seeing his nurse, he called her to sit with him. A Santa Claus type, Moss was beloved for his cheery warmth. He liked company, so he was delighted when his cousin Maggie Swope and one of her daughters entered the dining room home from a women's gathering. Around this time, Moss began to express discomfort. He might have squinted his eyes as he admitted to no one in particular, things look so queer, I feel so dizzy. At first, no one gave Moss much credence. He was 63 years old. Petty ales would strike him from time to time. But things escalated when the man lifted his glass of water. It shook violently in his hands. Something wasn't right. Given Moss's age and his festive frame, physical discomfort with tremors was a potential cause for concern. His symptoms could have indicated a TIA or mini-stroke. Less likely, they could have signaled an extreme drop in blood sugar or the onset of a nasty migraine headache. For a patient who's dizzy, shaking, and having visual problems, I'd first try to lay them down to avoid a fall. I'd then conduct a neurologic exam which would give me a feel for their sensory and motor capabilities. 
Moss probably would have needed quick medical treatment beyond this superficial once-over evaluation. However, Moss's nurse thought he only needed a rest and advised he lie down in the library. But when Moss stood, he collapsed back into his chair. His right leg had seized up. He was unable to move. Concerned, one of the Swope daughters phoned Frances, asking her to come quick with her husband, Dr. Hyde. In the meantime, the nurse enlisted a servant to help carry Moss to the library. Together, they stretched him across the couch where he seized, vomited on himself, and went unconscious. When Dr. Hyde arrived, he immediately suggested Moss had suffered apoplexy, or a stroke. No one questioned Hyde's fast diagnosis. It was what Hyde did next that raised suspicion. To alleviate pressure in the arteries, Hyde cut an incision in the old man's arm and watched intently as the blood spurted from Moss's right arm into a bucket. Bloodletting had long been a first response option in treating a hemorrhage or stroke because it lowered blood pressure in the most horrific way imaginable. For a stroke or apoplexy, chronic untreated high blood pressure is a common catalyst because excessively pressurized blood can wear down our blood vessel walls over time. As these vessel walls gradually get weaker, elevated blood pressure can cause them to rupture and the subsequent bleeding in a brain artery is the definition of a stroke. The concept of bloodletting seems sound. The less blood in the body, the less forceful its pressure as it travels through the vessels. However, like you said, Alistair, this practice could often lead to dangerous infections and death from a lack of blood and oxygen delivery to the vital organs. On top of many other concerns, Dr. Hyde would have had to monitor the patient's vital signs, bacterial contamination, and how much blood was being drained. He'd need to be precise in deciding when to stop. But as the bucket grew fuller, Hyde showed no signs of bandaging the incision on Moss's arm. The family grew concerned. Several people insisted enough blood had been taken. Moss's heart rate had clearly slowed. But Dr. Hyde didn't seem to think so. Minutes passed, and grim worry crossed the faces of those standing by. If he waited much longer to wrap up the wound, James Moss Hunton would surely die. Finally, Francis spoke up, saying, Dr. Twyman seems to think you have bled him enough, and I would quit. Dr. Hyde obliged her and wrapped up the wound. But it was too late. Minutes later, Moss seizured once more, gasped for air, and died. The time was 8.30 p.m. The blood loss was all anyone could think of. There'd just been so much of it. When asked how much blood he'd taken, Hyde calmly claimed he drained four pints, the equivalent of two quarts, or nearly 40% of the blood Moss Hunton had in his body. And so diverged two tales, one that presented a well-intentioned medical professional, and another that revealed a cold-blooded killer. Somewhere upstairs, Colonel Swope had yet to learn of his cousin's fast demise. Perhaps Dr. Hyde was plotting a way to get to him next. And it seems he might have even let his wife in on his plot. The next day, 
Francis Hyde placed an order for not one casket, but two. A strange move since only one person at the Swope residence had passed. It was a dark foreshadowing. Before the weekend's close, yet another death would strike at 406 South Pleasant Street. Hyde might have bled one man to death, but he had plans to bleed the whole family dry. One mark at a time. Next week, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde wields the secret weapon of bacteria culture, watching as the Swope family residence turns to a full-blown infirmary. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. For more information on Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, among the many sources we used, we found Deaths on Pleasant Street, The Ghastly Enigma of Colonel Swope and Dr. Hyde by Giles Fowler, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, edited by Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Murder.